I'm Jason Helgerson, and you're listening to Health 2049. I believe that it will be a human-led interaction, and that, yes, there will be a place for technology. That technology might be sensors. That technology might be artificial intelligence that's used for prompts and aids and coaching to help the patient. But it all has to be under the guidance of your physician. I don't see machines replacing the judgment of physicians who really need to lead that care team, both from a physical medicine, but then also the appropriate mental health and wellness specialties. Welcome to Health 2049. My name is Jason Helgerson. And I'm BC Williams. And together we're launching a podcast about the future of health and healthcare. Health 2049 is about ideas. Our goal is to inspire, to encourage others to see the future, not with dread or rose-colored glasses, but as a design challenge that must be taken up by all of us. We ask each of our guests to describe what they hope health and healthcare will look like in the year 2049. That's right, Jason. And by looking 30 years in the future... We give them license to dream. That said, we don't have time for Pollyannas. Or pessimists. We want their vision to be rooted in science and the art of the possible. We're also committed to diversity. We want to give people from around the world and many different backgrounds the opportunity to tell us their vision for what's possible. So join us in leaving the present behind. And embracing an amazing and beautiful future. Today's guest is both a visionary and a successful executive. He's been on the leading edge of American healthcare for nearly 30 years, including many years at the head of one of the nation's largest health insurers, Aetna, where he served as chairman and CEO. Ron Williams is also a highly sought-after board member and corporate advisor and currently serves on the boards of American Express, Boeing, and the world's largest healthcare company, Johnson & Johnson. In addition to his work leading large organizations, Ron is committed to supporting startups and nonprofit organizations that share his commitment to making healthcare better for all. Ron is also one of the few black male executives in an industry that is still woefully undiversified, where women and minorities in positions of power are sadly still the exception. I'm Jason Helgerson, and you're listening to Health 2049, and it's my pleasure to welcome Ron Williams to the program. Ron, welcome. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, great, Ron. Maybe you could tell our audience a little bit more about your interesting background. Well, I would say that I am extremely fortunate. I have uh, seen the world from the vantage point of one of the largest health plans in the country. I also have seen the world from the vantage point of one of the, the largest pharmaceutical medical devices and consumer healthcare companies. And then in my private equity work, I have seen healthcare from the vantage point of innovative emerging companies that have found very important problems and unmet needs in the healthcare system and have developed innovative solutions. So I uh, joke that sometimes I have very vigorous conversations with myself based (laughs) on the different perspectives I've seen in the healthcare system. 
Well, fantastic. So that's one that, that's a key reason why you're such a great guest for our show is uh, all the different perspectives that you've had throughout your illustrious career. And and so I, I'm very excited to be able to ask this next question, which is the question we ask all our guests, which is, so what does health and healthcare look like in the year 2049? Well, I, I wish I had a clear roadmap. I don't, but what I have are aspirations that reflect what I hope the world is like then. I would start with the fact that everyone has access to high quality care that helps them live a full and fulfilling life. And that care is preventive in its nature. It's holistic in the sense that it deals not just with the physical health, but it deals with their mental health and well-being. And that the system itself is organized around wellness and that it is a global system that doesn't just provide that level of care to people who are privileged and who live in the right zip codes, but people who, wherever they live, have access to that. Great. So that, I think, paints a very clear sort of broad picture, but maybe we could drill down or tap into a couple of aspects of what that system is going to look like. Maybe from a patient's perspective, how, how will the patient experience, or maybe even instead of using the word patient, as you use person or family's experience, how will they experience the system? What will it be like and how will it differ from what is experienced today? I would start with the fact that Today, uh, families seek medical care when they have a symptom or a problem. And I think in the future, we will have a level of data, digitization, and sensors that will monitor the state of health that individuals have. It would be highly private to the individual and the family. And I think there's a huge opportunity for the digitization, the personalization, healthcare to engage with each person in a way that that person is able to really understand what they need to do in order to maintain optimum health and well-being. So in a sense, you're talking about basically almost 24-7, 365-day monitoring and interaction and interface between the system and the individual or the family unit. And I think that is, you know, a lot of people are excited about the role that technology could play, but all that data being collected, talk about it being private, being protected. Do you have any fear that this data could, in essence, be used in sort of nefarious ways or that people may re rebel against the idea of being monitored as, as, a, as aggressively as maybe what you described? Well, I would say there are always concerns and fears. Uh, if we look at the amount of financial data and financial information that's readily available. And is it misused? Yes, there are instances where it is. But by and large, society is better off. I think it's important that it be voluntary. If people don't want to do it, they don't have to. But there's a cost of their well-being and health that they would bear. And if they so choose that, that, that would be an option open to them. I think like most things that are new and innovative, it takes time for people to become aware of it and get comfortable with it. But if we think about the devices we have today, where you can have a device that tells you, did you take enough steps today? Did you get enough exercise? Did you have a trip and fall? And should someone be called to assist you? We're seeing the beginning emergence of this kind of technology. 
So it's not an electric switch that will throw all at once. And we will go through an acclimation period. I think concern is healthy. And, and I think people should think meaningfully about how this data would be used. But I think it's important that we not slow down the progress because it will radically transform the health of individuals. Interesting. So one other aspect of your sort of global sort of worldview, your vision for the future that I found interesting that sort of differs from a lot of the guests we've had on the show, is you see it as a global system. Can you maybe get in a little bit more into that is because is, to a great extent, the water's edge in healthcare is the national border. Tell us a little bit more about what you see as sort of what a global health system looks like. One of the things I've learned is that the healthcare system in every country unfolds in a cultural context of that country's history and that country's cultural preferences. So I don't think we can have a one-size-fits-all. The UK will be very different than France, which will be different than the US, it will be different than Brazil. The one thing that's common is that germs travel at the speed of a flight. And so there has to be a system that takes care of everyone. So let's talk a little bit about the providers in the system in 2049 and a lot of concern around burnout and individuals just feeling overwhelmed by uh, the task of being a healthcare provider in this environment. Do you see the, the experience of a provider being fundamentally different, their role changing, and uh, if so, changing for the better? Well, I think we owe the whole clinical community a enormous thank you for the work that they've done during this COVID crisis, and I think they've been underappreciated. I think when we think about the future, what we have to recognize is right now we have a fundamental shortage, particularly in the primary care area, and that we're going to have to think about how do we shift care from individual physicians to a team that is under the guidance and supervision of that physician, and that we create new roles and make maximum use of the nutritionist, the physical therapy, the physician's assistant, the nurse practitioner, and that we help the physician shift from a fee-for-service system where it is transaction-based. They get paid to see a person at a moment in time. If they don't see them, there's no payment. And many of the services that they have to provide, there's no code for. What code do they submit to be reimbursed to put a person in a Uber or Lyft to bring them into the office to be seen to avoid a trip to the hospital? And so we need to go to a system where the physicians are paid an aggregate amount to look after a group of patients who have selected them as their primary care physician. Those physicians need to be supported through the digitization of healthcare by really combining the understanding of the disease mechanism, the best clinical practices, and the state of the patient's condition based on their lab results, based on their biometric data that they're willing to share voluntarily, based on the degree to which they have a healthcare condition that requires more intensive care. And so instead of being this sick care system that the doctor sees you when you have a symptom or a condition, the doctor is proactively scanning that data 
and intervening to assist you to avoid that condition progressing to the maximum extent possible. Interesting. So in, in your, what you just described, which uh, is certainly music to my ears about the need to move away from fee-for-service reimbursement and the perverse incentives it creates, but the, that, that future state you're describing is still very much about human beings providing care to human beings. Do you see uh, a real increasing role of, of technology, computers, artificial intelligence being more of the interface between the patient and the system? Or do you think that by in the year 2049, it's still going to very much be a human-to-human uh, type of interaction? I believe that it will be a human-led interaction. And that, yes, there will be a place for technology. That technology might be sensors. That technology might be artificial intelligence that's used for prompts and aids and coaching to help the patient. But it all has to be under the guidance of your physician. And that physician will have access to data, to information, to artificial intelligence that may very well prompt them that says, Mrs. Jones' blood pressure seems to be outside of the acceptable range today. So the nurse practitioner or the nurse assistant needs to reach out to Mrs. Jones and determine, is there anything going on that requires an intervention? I don't see machines replacing the judgment of physicians who really need to lead that care team, both from a physical medicine, but then also the appropriate mental health and wellness specialties. Gotcha. So let's talk a little bit about the role of government in the future system that you see. What will be the role of government in the U.S., but you know, feel free to go beyond the U.S. as well? Well, I think each country has to reach a, a decision, as I mentioned, based on its culture, its history, and its citizens' preferences about what is the mechanism to fund the healthcare system in the country. And there are really tough decisions that, that governments will face. For example, as we make progression in things like genomics, the use of CRISPR technology, the use of the ability to eradicate disease through intervention. Some of these procedures and technologies will be incredibly expensive. And the question will be, how does the government decide and how does that society decide who gets what? And that is a, a place where I think the government can facilitate, can, can guide, and can help create mechanisms because people worry a lot about rationing care. And all countries ration care some countries ration it through a system like uh, in the UK where there's a group that evaluates technology and figures out, is this something that is worth applying and to whom is it a investment that the country should make? If you're 95 years old, we're not going to give you a hip replacement. If you're 55, you'll get a hip replacement. In the U.S., we ration economically. If you live in the right zip code, you get 10 to 20 year extension on your life. If you live in the wrong zip code, your life is shortened by 10 to 20 years. And so I think the government has to sort through this in a way that is equitable to the citizens. Are you optimistic, let's take the United States, that, um, that you think that by the year 2049, that the government 
whether uh, you probably at the at the national level or maybe in certain states at the state level, will be able to solve this conundrum. Will be able to figure out how to ensure equitable access to healthcare. Are you an optimist when it comes to that question? Well, the answer is I'm an optimist. I, I have to be based on what I've accomplished in uh, my life and what I've been fortunate enough to achieve. And I have watched the level of insurance coverage increase dramatically uh, in the U.S. We're not where we need to be, but we have made very, very substantial progress. We have a ways to go. And I do believe that by the year 2049, we should be in a place where either every person has health insurance and every person has access to coverage. I think the debate will be what level of entitlement is, does each person have? Does every person have coverage up to $5 million? Does every person have coverage that's unlimited? And you can imagine a world in which if we spent $5 million on every person preventively to keep them healthy and alive, we could do so. The question is, would we have the resources? If we did, hooray, we should do it. And if we don't, then there are tough decisions that that society will, will have to decide. I hear you loud and clear on that. And I, I share your optimism that, uh, that at least, the, in my view, the arc of history is, is uh, bending in the right direction in terms of the uninsured rate in the United States uh, coming down and access increasing. But 2049 is roughly 30 years in the future. Let's move on to innovation in the sector. And the role of companies like J&J or others, how do you think we're going to be funding innovation in health and healthcare in the year 2049? Government, private sector, you know, a lot really falls on the backs of, uh, of the United States at this point to fund it for the world. What, what are your thoughts on, on funding innovation in the health and healthcare sector? By 2049, I think the system will continue in the direction that it is now, which is public-private partnerships, that certain core fundamental research is often funded by government and universities, and that research helps us understand the disease mechanism for a variety of conditions. Once that mechanism is understood, then the private sector goes to work trying to find the answer of how do you defeat that disease mechanism and, and, and address that unmet need for a cure or for mitigation of the situation. I can tell you that the private sector, pharmaceutical industries, literally spend billions of dollars a year on therapies that are proven either not to work or have side effects or indications that are unacceptable. And I believe that in the U.S., the FDA does a really excellent job to, to do its best to make certain that those treatments are safe and, and effective. And I think when we set the clock forward, the technology that is unfolding, particularly around gene therapy, will change the type of care. We had oral medication. We had injections. And we actually will end up at a place where more of the treatment may, may very well be at the cellular level in the context of genomics. Yes. So maybe we could dive a little bit more to cell and gene therapy in particular. Tremendous optimism around the ability to cure diseases that uh, had been seen as uncurable. 
you know, obviously new, new treatments in, in particularly in areas like cancer, a lot of or rare diseases, but also concerns about the cost of those uh, treatments. Do you think that they not only will cure disease, do you think that there'll be things that uh, nations and economies will be able to afford and at least certainly be able to afford for all of its people? Well, I think one of the things I've seen is that many therapies do start out expensive, but over time, the cost of those therapies come down and become much more affordable. Uh, they're still not cheap. They're not inexpensive. And that's because of, the, of the, not only the work necessary, but the highly specialized testing, training, and evaluation. I think that like most things, as we scale these uh, treatments, we will come up with mechanisms to finance the level of care that is warranted here. If you think about insurance, insurance was based on the concept that an individual alone couldn't necessarily pay for the entire cost of a heart transplant. But if we pooled everyone together and we set a premium for that, then we could, we could have resources available for those unfortunate individuals who needed that procedure. And I think these high-cost therapies will, in fact, result in the development of new financing and funding mechanisms over time. The thing we, that is important that we not do, we should not stop the development of these solutions because it is expensive. They do start out costing a lot. But over time, as they are perfected, as they are scaled, and they figure out how to do it in a less expensive way, and there are competitors in the market with that therapy, the costs come down. So I think it is going to be an important issue that, that we will have to solve, and I'm optimistic that we'll solve it. Great. Um, so one more question I've got for you in this area, dying to hear your thoughts on this, is this this one of the uh, the emerging treatments or ideas that's coming is the idea of gene editing and the idea that perhaps we'll be able to identify the uh, the genetic causes for various diseases and and actually be able to edit genes to be able to prevent those chronic illnesses and if we're able to do that systematically uh, we could extend human life well beyond what we see today and Sometimes people are predicting that uh, by even maybe by the year 2049, that a life expectancy for individuals in certain parts of the world could, could be as long as 125 uh, years. And if we get to that point, are you, one, do you think that's in fact possible, doable within the, the time horizon of 2049? And does that excite you or does it also uh, maybe raise some concerns about broader implications of of such an extension of life? Well, look, that's a huge question. And I, I think I would say that the answer, quite honestly, is we don't know. When the whole idea of mapping the human genome was first uh, thought of, and when we first completed the mapping, there were great expectations about what that would mean for our ability to intervene. And it turned out that it was incredibly more complicated than anyone ever imagined. And the interaction between different elements of the genome were not well understood. I think that any attempt to intervene really does require very careful review and control. And I think the, the question is, are you intervening in the case of an individual 
or are you intervening in the whole genomic sequence that will occur going forward? And I think those are fundamentally different questions. I'm not an expert in it, but I think we do need consultation of ethicists, of scientists, different uh, religious uh, communities to really have vigorous debate about what is therapy, what is change, and how do we make those in a way that's responsible? You know, I would say that if I could live to be 125 and be in, you know, reasonable health and be cognitively functioning, sure, I would certainly want to do it. And I think many people would. Uh, And the question is, how do we get from where we are to there? And on the way there, you know, I would I would take 105 and consider that a big win. <laughs> I'm with you. I'd be, I'd be very, very happy to get to 105. So uh, the last question we always like to ask our guests is to take a step back and think if your vision for health and healthcare is in fact achieved by 2049, and it's a very compelling and optimistic one that you shared with us today, how would that make society, the world, a better place? Well, I think that uh, it would make society and the world a place that would unleash a level of creativity, engagement, productivity, and personal fulfillment. That is something that people have dreamed about and talked about. If you think about the average life expectancy 100 years ago versus 100 life expectancy today, If you think about the technology of 100 years ago and the technology of today, it would be magic from the point of view of looking at things in 1921 or 22. And so I think if we set the clock forward another 50 years and can accomplish the things that we're on the cusp of doing, I think we stand an opportunity to really make certain that there is true uh, healthcare and a fundamental improvement in the health status of people all over the world. And those in zip codes in the U.S. today who are not getting the level of health equity that they should be getting, and you can go down the list, whether it's Africa, China, Latin America, there's an enormous amount of unmet medical need that desperately needs to be addressed. And that was Ron Williams' vision for health in the year 2049. As always, thank you for listening to Health 2049. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please subscribe to us on Apple Music and Spotify and share this podcast with a friend. Thank you and see you next time.